0: For me, it was more perseverance and diligence and just hard work. And I just kind of had to learn by exposure. I didn't go to film school, so it was a matter of learning through doing.
1: Welcome back to Creative How, the podcast for curious creatives. I'm Sean Flanagan. And I'm Jed Jesslin. Today we have
2: a great treat for you guys. It's Filmmaker... Ruben Fleischer. He's the director of such movies as 30 Minutes or Less, Gangster Squad, Marvel Universe movie Venom, and probably what he's best known for, and justifiably so, Zombieland.
1: If you haven't heard of Zombieland, you're living under a rock, and the good news for those of us that are fans, he's returning to that universe. We get into a little bit of that. We also get into his approach to filmmaking in general, so get those notepads out and we're going to kill it. Jed, I'm I'm super excited. Today's guest couldn't embody the the mission of our podcast any more than Ruben Fleischer. Welcome, Ruben.
0: Thanks. Thanks so much for having. Me. It's really exciting to be here.
1: Look, we've we are fans obviously of your of your your films and and we were very aware of you from a directorial level. But then once we sort of you know do research for the show and things like that, it's it's unbelievable. I don't know. Do you have extra hours and days that other people don't? How do you get? <laughs>
0: No, I feel that way about most everybody else. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I'm just trying to keep keep busy.
1: I think what drew us to you and why we think you just embody the the mission of this show is that if I'm correct, you you weren't really groomed to be a director. It wasn't really, uh, you know, you. Don't, I don't know if you've come from a showbiz family or, you know, you weren't sort of like Bryce Harper style told you were going to be this one thing and that's all you've ever been you kind of didn't arrive at this decision a little later maybe than most. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, it was quite the opposite. Um, Yeah. I didn't really ever know what I wanted to do. I went to college for history and, um, and definitely my, you know, my dad was a doctor and my mom was a teacher. So not much Hollywood to be found in Washington, DC. Um, But I moved out to California in 96 and was living in San Francisco and actually working for ad agencies that was my first ever exposure to ad agencies I was building websites um, for GM and um, Microsoft and some other big brands at the very kind of beginning of the internet this was like uh, 1996 so it was basic HTML like gifs and um, yeah pretty pretty you know basic stuff but I got paid50 dollars an hour to go work at Hal Reini and Partners and various other SF uh, shops to build these sites. Um, I didn't really know how to do HTML and was kind of just learning on the job, but at that time it was so kind of new that that uh, they would just hire anybody that could just kind of figure it out. And I was 21 and so that was like a ton of money and just this crazy world and uh, was really fun. But I learned very quickly that, you know, I wasn't born to be a programmer. I just have no uh, talent or instincts for that. And so um, I, I ended up getting a job in L.A. as a producer on a, a website, so less less coding and more kind of management. Um, but I was, I was definitely excited to move to L.A. because I had always been curious about entertainment, but I just didn't know quite what aspect of the business I would fit into. I knew I couldn't act. Um, I knew I couldn't write. I, I wasn't very funny, but I loved, loved, loved comedy. Um, so I was uh, excited just to kind of go to Hollywood and see see what I could find. Um, anyway, the website I was working for quickly went under, and I was left without a job. And through a college connection, uh, there was a guy named Mike White who was like four years older than me and he's now known as the writer of school of rock and he created the show enlightened and he's written and directed multiple movies and, um, and he's TV on survivor shows. Too. Yeah. And he, and he was on last season of survivor, <laughs> right. um, epic player. But, uh, but, but last, um, but, uh, I was broke and I didn't have a job. Once the thing, uh, once that website fell apart, Um, and so I asked Mike if he could get me a job as a PA. And at the time he was working on Dawson's Creek. And so he got me a job as a PA in the writer's room. So I basically had to like go get lunches. And this was before like email was kind of widely accepted for business. And so like at that time, if there was new pages of a script or a draft of a script that was released, someone had to physically copy those pages and then deliver them to the studio and to the network into the different people's houses. So I drove around all over LA with the Thomas God, no sat nav, just, you know, delivering hand, delivering scripts to all the 45 people on the distribution mm, list wow. whenever they made a change to a page. So it was a pretty, <laughs> you know, uh, typical introduction to Los Angeles or entertainment, just starting at the bottom, kind of doing everything. Um, but they shot the show in Wilmington. So I had no real exposure to the set. It was really just like the writing offices and the writers. And and I, again, I didn't think I could be a writer. I tried to write a couple spec scripts while I was working that job and just didn't come easily and didn't seem to be uh, my talent. So Mike went and uh, wrote this movie called Chuck and Buck, Mm -hmm. which a director named Miguel Arteta made. And it was a $200,000 indie film shot on mini DV. Um, so he, Mike got, Mike starred in the movie and wrote it and got me a job as an assistant to the director, Miguel. Uh, and that was really like my first time ever on a set. Granted, it was a super low budget indie set, but, uh, it was kind of like a dream come true slash like uh, film school guerrilla style boot camp, just learning everything all at once. And, um, it was through that experience, I got an understanding of just like the basics of, you know, filmmaking, whether it's what a camera does, what a actor does, what, you know, the editor does every aspect of it. Miguel was so generous and allowed me to kind of just shadow him on every aspect of it. I was making like $200 a week and living off of unemployment, working 70 hours uh, a week, just doing anything he asked, whether it was like. Uh, you know, helping him find a location, sit in a casting or literally doing his laundry. I did whatever needed <laughs> to be done. And it was really just like my introduction and it, it was really like invigorating.
2: It's crazy that I, I feel like you're, you're, it's, it sounds so smooth, but I know it isn't because you're literally every step of the way, it sounds like you're trying completely and totally new things. And even failing at some of them and then trying the next thing? Is that something that you kind of feel like you grew up with or h- how do you have that trait?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I've thought about that before. I think probably my greatest talent is just not giving up and being relentless. Like I, I I know there's people who are just inherently great directors or, you know, look at a Damien Chazelle or some, Paul Thomas Anderson who made Boogie Nights at 26, like those guys, you know, yeah. came out of the womb, born to, be great filmmakers. Um, for me, it was more perseverance and diligence and just hard work um, because, you know, I, I don't write. So I wasn't able to generate my own material. Um, and I just kind of had to learn by exposure. I didn't go to film school. So it was a matter of learning through doing. So yeah, basically cutting ahead. Um, I worked various assistant jobs for Miguel. I worked at DreamWorks TV for a little bit. And then Again, with Miguel in this movie called The Good Girl, which was a little bit bigger with Jennifer Aniston and Jake Gyllenhaal. And uh, on that one, there were unions. And so I couldn't, ha- I couldn't be doing as much. I kind of just had to sit and watch because I wasn't allowed to like touch things. Um, but again, Miguel was super gracious and allowed me access to everything.
2: And Mike White was in that one too, right?
0: Yeah, he wrote it and uh, was in it. And so they were really my mentors, Mike and Miguel. And uh, yeah after the making of that film, uh, I decided I wanted to try and um, be a director. Um, and so not being a writer, I found these I was obsessed with stand-up comedy like that was something from high school on like I used to watch Letterman every single night and if I couldn't if I fell asleep I taped it and I would just you know pour over like, Woody Allen books or comedy anthologies and just was like obsessed with comedy um and so uh when I first moved to LA one of the greatest things about uh, LA is true to this day is that any night of the week you can go see the greatest comedians in the world uh for like five bucks at various different venues and so when I was broke and just being a PA like at that time it was kind of the alt comedy boom post-mister show a lot of like these people who are now very famous, like David Cross and Bob Odenkirk and Jack Black and Zach Galifianakis were relative unknowns. And so they'd be playing at like random coffee houses. There was even a show in a laundromat, like just any venue they could find, they'd be performing and I was obsessed with it and was just go to any show I could go to and if they were free, all the better. But there was these two girls named Marilyn Lynn Rice-Cup and Karen Kilgariff who uh, had been on Mr. Show and who I was a huge Mr. Show fan. And um, they had kind of like a female Tenacious D girl uh, guitar group called the Girls Guitar Club. And they were bad at guitar. And that was kind of their shtick. And they sang songs and they were super, super funny. Um, and I just was kind of taken by them. And being a fan of like the Tenacious D shorts, I thought to myself, maybe we I make a short film with them. So I approached Mary Lynn, but I didn't really know and said, hey, I'm this dude. I want to. Make a short film with you guys, and this was pre-YouTube, pre, you know, kind of like that. Uh, what do you call it? Funnier or Diary, or College right. Humor. It was yep. just like, you know, there was no real point to making a short film other than to serve the directors, you know, to help them further the career. But I think the girls were just excited about that. Anyone was excited to make a short with them, so we kind of like came up with an idea based on their stand-up, and um, and I had saved like three grand or something from working as an assistant working at DreamWorks. And so I spent all my money, uh, and bought a mini DV camera VX 1000, which was the same camera that they used to shoot Chuck and Buck. Um, and I had this camera and I kind of cobbled together a crew and put all my savings into the short film, um, and made this, I think it's like 12 minute short that I, to this day, I'm really proud of. And I was convinced, As soon as it was done, I would be getting movie offers and, you know, be directing pilots and, you know, that, that would just take care of itself. But, you know, it was really hard work making it and editing it together. Um, and then I couldn't really get anybody to watch it because it was like, at that time you'd have to like send out a VHS in the mail and then to whatever random connections I had, which weren't many and, you know, whether it was for commercial representation or anything like no one would even pay attention to it. So then I'd spent all my money, but I had this video camera. And so I just started shooting little uh, music videos for like random friends of mine that had bands, um, you know, just kind of learning how to make stuff and edit stuff myself. And, um, a friend of mine was this guy called gold chains who was in San Francisco, who was like a kind of a white rapper, electronic music kind of guy. This was like around 2001. And, uh, I made a music video for him for 50 bucks, um, that ended up getting played on MTV. Hmm. Um, and so I, that kind of like caught a spark. And since I knew how to make websites and I was sick of sending my VHS tapes to people I made a website for myself and I started posting all my videos on that site because then I could just send people links at that point. People started to have email and it was still before YouTube.
1: Um,
0: and, uh, yeah, I just started making stuff and I, you know, to go back to your question, I feel like I'm kind of rambling at this point. It's like a masterclass right now. I, I, uh, I, I just had perseverance, you know, I just was like, okay, uh, I'm not going to get a job. I'm just going to shoot things. I didn't have any money. I was living off unemployment, but my rent was really cheap. Uh, you know, I had two roommates, and uh, basically was living off of credit cards and unemployment, and just kept shooting stuff. And that gold chains thing kind of sparked some other ones. So little indie labels like on the West Coast, friends of friends, like would get me a job. Maybe with like a twenty-five hundred dollar budget for a music video or three thousand dollar music video. But um, Gold Chains ended up getting signed by this British label called Play It Again Sam. And they had, uh, I did another video for Gold Chains uh, that they liked. And so then they had an artist named DJ Format and he had a track that had two of the rappers from Jurassic Five on it and it was a really good song. But, um, and they wanted a music video for it. And they had like, I think like seven grand for the video. Um, but they didn't have the rappers, the rappers wouldn't be in it. So I came up with the treatment for a rap video, which was basically a bunch of, um, l- like live action mascots, like a shark and a tiger and a turtle, uh, performing a hip hop video. <laughs> like you would normally have, we had like all the tropes of a hip hop, hip hop video, like, you know, um, wide angle lens, rapping at the camera, like driving around in a, you know, old hooptie convertible playing basketball, those kinds of things. Right. Um, and I used the whole budget for the video, the seven grand to be able to shoot on 35 mil. And I got <laughs> through Craigslist. I found this breakdance crew in LA that I got to work for free being the, the people in the mascot costumes and, um, over two over a weekend, cause you could rent the equipment on Friday and return it on Monday. I, uh, Shot this unpermitted music video <laughs> with these rapping sharks and, and tiger and whatnot and breakdancing. They are all breakdancing and um, cut it together and put it up on my website. And like a few weeks later, I got a an email from the serv- like the host of the website saying that I owed them like seven thousand dollars in hosting fees, and it was because so many people had streamed the video. Um, it it had become like a viral video online and it, um, ended up getting into a music video film festival in London and playing there. And the next day I got calls from five different production companies to represent me for commercials. So this was like about a year and a half into me deciding to be a director, like after that girls guitar club short film. And I was, I think $40,000 in debt and credit cards at that time and super stressed out and honestly couldn't get anyone to look at my stuff, but because I made my own website and it, this thing kind of before YouTube became a viral video, I, uh, I, I, got this exposure and then like three weeks later was in Cape town shooting a McDonald's commercial with Ronald McDonald. Jesus. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, I got signed by smuggler and by Partisan and uh, stink in Europe and, and was like shooting commercial, you know, that launched my commercial career in like two months, you know, my debt was erased and I was actually working as a, as a commercial director. So I was, I think 26 at that time uh, that I, I was either 26 when I quit working and decided to shoot my own short or 26. I think it was 26 when I decided to shoot my own short. And then like, so I was like 28 when the commercial started to happen. So yeah, like you said earlier, it was a little later, like I didn't come straight out of film school, like knowing what I was gonna do, I had to kind of bounce around those assistant jobs in Hollywood for a few years to kind of find my path. And it was only just because Miguel was so gracious and I he allowed me to understand what a director is and gave me that exposure um, that, that I even knew how or what to do. But yeah, then it was just kind of through force of will and um, you know, just, just taking my fate into my own hands and just like forcing myself to shoot stuff that I, uh, was able to kind of build a little career.
1: Do you think that's what differentiates maybe your set and your approach to filmmaking from other folks? Do you have, do you still have that sort of, I guess I don't call it chip, but that sort of mentality that you're, you weren't given any of this.
0: I mean, I pride myself on it for sure. And I think that that spirit, um, informs things, but you know, I'd be lying if I'd said I was still like grinding everything out um, you know, in quite the same way, just because as I've grown and had more opportunities, like more comes my way, I guess. I don't have to fight quite as hard. But um but yeah, I definitely like that just indie spirit. And I think it's kind of ironic that I've never made a indie film. Like often I fantasize about like oh just going off and Making something for no money and getting back to that sort of original inspiration of just like by hook or by crook and figuring it out.
2: Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I, I mean I I feel like I understand that now things are you don't have to be the writer producer director and promoter of all the work you do now but at that time in reference to the video you were talking about that sort of I think um, launched your success to a degree you're $40,000 in debt and you're, you are grinding it out. Were you sort of stressed out? Were you worried that something wasn't going to work out? How did you feel at that time?
0: Was there a plan B? Yeah. No, there was a, there was no plan. Well, there's kind of a plan B, um, the, but I didn't like the plan B basically. Um, I was super stressed out. I was like freaking out because I would, I honestly like every month I would just like open a new credit card and transfer the balance. And it was like, starting to catch up on me. And I, you know, every once in a while I'd go take a temp job doing some crummy office job, just to like be able to pay rent or whatever it took. Um, my parents didn't give me any money and it was all just kind of like, you know, hustle and, 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 and whatever budgets I got for music videos that I was doing at the time I put all the money into the production. I didn't really take anything to pay myself. So it was, it was not very responsible. Um, but, but I remember being really stressed out, and I remember Miguel, uh, that mentor guy, saying to me, "You know, it's all going to be okay. And honestly, you're going to look back at this, and it's going to be like your fondest time. Just keep doing what you're doing." Um, and he was so right. Like that kind of like, you know, twenty something, just do or die attitude. Uh, it, it was it was so fun. I was working with my friends. It wasn't about anything other than just trying to make each project the very best it could be. Like we weren't thinking about like, what does this lead to or does this matter? Is this the right thing? It was just like, I was just excited to have opportunities and to get to make stuff. And once I started doing commercials, I mean, I was traveling all over the world, you know, from Africa to Europe to Czechoslovakia to Spain. I did a series of spots in Tokyo. So for me, it was just like, this whole world opened up and it was just the most exciting time. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, I look back really fondly on that sort of like gestation period or, you know, just learning the craft, I guess, as a director.
2: That, I mean, incredible origin story.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) But I think, um, getting into now, you know, you've done all kinds of different movies, uh, zombie land, 30 minutes or less gangster squad venom. So you've run lots of different sets, and also there's been a pretty major amount of comedy. So I want to shift gears here and ask you the toughest question you've ever heard. Possibly, what was the hardest you ever laughed on one of your sets?
0: <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I mean, I'll say uh, this most recent film, Zombieland Two. Almost every day was like we we're one upping how hard we would laughed the day before. It was just a truly positive and amazing experience came to work with Emma and Woody and Jesse and Abby again they're all so so funny Um, and then we had a couple new additions that were also really really funny there's a girl called Zoe Deutsch that is just ridiculous um, and so good in the movie so so funny and um, I can't really cite a specific um, like moment but I can tell you that the experience of working with people you truly love who, you know, there's a real uh, kinship and um, closeness with makes the experience so much more fun. And uh, we we're all kind of there cause we love the original and we wanted to be like, no one was doing it for any other reason. Um, and, and it was just a joy like, and so every day, I mean, they're all incredible. You know, those are some of the world's funniest people literally and every day just improvs and, um, you know, kind of in between takes and just, just so much fun.
1: You mentioned the kinship and it's, it go, it doesn't go unnoticed that, you know, a lot of these folks do tend to cut across a lot of your films. You t- t- seem to keep wanting to surround yourself with, um, that kinship from movie to movie. A great examples, you know, Woody Harrelson, you know, it, a guy like that who's so established and your job is to direct him and he's been doing it for a little longer than you have, like how do you sort of continue to raise his game?
0: Um, I think you have to earn his trust. I think on the first movie he was uh, really kind of dubious just because at that point I hadn't really done much. Um, I remember at one point he was like, you know, can't believe I'm working with a guy who's just done Burger King commercials. Um, but, uh, he, uh, he was like, I remember the first day I was shooting with him. Um, he kind of called me out in front of the whole crew, I think a little bit just to test my metal and I held firm and, um, you know, it wasn't adversarial. It was more just kind of like kicking the tires. Um and and I think I passed the test and, and it ended up being a really positive collaboration. Um, but Woody's like a real pro, you know, he's you know, there's some actors who I don't think are too interested in direction. They know better than everybody else and they're you know, that's their quote unquote process. But Woody's like um a, a, a professional who I think really enjoys the director actor relationship and wants feedback and wants, you know, how can we make this better and is always constantly looking to elevate the takes or elevate um the scene, um mining, you know, every line for for comedy or looking for ways to add lines to make it even funnier. And he's also someone who loves to do a lot of takes. Like not every actor does. Some want to just do two or three and feel like that's what it is. Woody's a guy who'll probably do as many as he will let, him. you know, he'll just go all day. He just loves just finding new things. And it's, you know, as a director, it's really a joy because then you get to play, uh, and are always trying to like, you know, oh, all right, we got it that way. Let's try it this way or, you know, let's go really big on this one. Even if it's over the top, let's just, let's just see where the limit is. And it's, um, it's really fun for me. And, and it's also great because once you get into the editing room, you have so many more options, you know. If somebody just does the same thing three takes, and that's it. That's kind of what it's going to be. But with Woody, there's just so much variety, and now that we're in post, we're constantly mining, you know, uh, improvs and looking at all it takes just to see how we can kind of change change the feeling of the scene. So,
2: speaking of improv, I watched thirty minutes or less again recently. Obviously, because we're really amazing researchers here, um, I feel like maybe I'm imagining this, but I feel like Danny McBride was on the edge of busting out in so many scenes. Is that how? Yeah. I
0: mean, Nick, Nick's so funny. Yeah. Nick Swartzen, who he acted opposite. Like he's a real unsung comedy, uh, just, just legend. He's so funny. And when it comes to improv, those two just really hit it off. And there's quite a few scenes in the movie where it's just them making shit up. And it's so, so funny. Um, So, yeah, I think we're all kind of just on the verge of losing it throughout that, um, throughout that film. And, uh, you know, say what you want, Will, about the movie. Is definitely really, really funny. And, um, Danny, I think is exceptional. He's just so funny in the movie. It's and, unbelievable. Uh, I
1: I will say, we will say what we want about that movie. And I think it's damn hilarious it's and, and you don't have more, uh, evangelists on this side of the country than the two of us, because I, I un- admittedly just discovered this movie. Um, and I I, I, I can't tell enough people. I think it's so damn funny, dude. So, uh, don't be so modest about it. I think I think yeah. it's great. <laughs> no,
0: no, I mean it, I only say that just because it got terrible reviews and it didn't perform at the box office. So it's not just my opinion. But uh, but 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 I think it's hilarious. I was really happy with the film, and I think like the performances that Penny, like Michael Penny, in that movie is so so funny, and I think one of his best performances. Uh, you know, Jesse is always hilarious to me and and Danny and Nick are so funny. and it was Aziz's kind of first and only yeah. starring movie role, like in yeah. kind of his big big feature film debut. So uh, you know I, I, I and I think he's so funny in the movie, and he came up with a million hilarious like you know improvs or jokes that he wrote himself. like he's just a comedy genius. so yeah, i I'm really proud of the film, and I think it is uh, super funny. and yeah, we definitely. I mean, to answer your earlier question about what's the hardest, I mean, we laughed really hard on that film too.
2: I imagine. So I wanted to ask a question about your style with actors and how it's evolved. And it's interesting because you just brought up um, Michael Pena and he, his, he obviously did, a, I don't even know what to call it, an affectation on his voice. And I've got to think you guys talked about that. So the big question is, how have you developed your style with actors? The very small question is, how'd that accent come about?
0: Well, it's actually a great kind of lesson. Um, I feel like as a director, and I'm stealing this from somebody, but I couldn't attribute it to who. It's like if you, I think it was Milos Foreman actually. If you cast the actor closest to the role, then you don't have to do as much as the director. Um, and so I'm really like thorough with the casting, and I just want to make sure... That whoever we cast is going to be able to perform because there's nothing worse than having to make a comedy and having people that aren't funny. So like, I I, I just want to make sure whoever I cast is the absolute best and funniest and closest to the part that I can find. Um, and for that character, the hitman in Thirty Minutes or Less, it was kind of like a open casting call. There wasn't a real uh, prototype, or you know, it could it could have been anyone. Um, and Peña came in, I was kind of familiar with him, but not super familiar. Um, and he definitely wasn't, you know, known as much for comedy. I think he was more known for like crash and world trade center and those more dramatic films. But, um, he came into the, he actually auditioned for that and he came into the audition with that character fully realized and developed. It was based on like, I think his cousin in Chicago, who was like, some sort of low level kind of i don't know what and uh he just had he kind of talked like that so he kind of was just doing a bit of an impression of his cousin and so that was like i can't take any credit for it it was just like how he saw the character he came into the audition with that character fully developed and it was just the funniest thing i'd seen and of course wanted to cast him immediately upon seeing it yeah he was
1: he was so good we was, was awesome. funny So the, that's, you know, the actors, they're, they're sort of one portion of the creative team on set. The other ones, the writers. And I guess I want to know, how are you, are you involving them? Are they on set or is it a situation where their job's done? You're interpreting the script, how you see fit, and they don't really have a lot of input. Is that how that works?
0: It kind of varies film to film and the writer to writer. Um, on the first Zombieland, Paul and Rhett, Uh, that was their first movie that I think they wrote that got made. They came from TV. And so they were real, you know, they'd written this amazing script that got all these actors involved. And then they were there every day on set. It was a real collaboration, you know, always behind the camera, pitching jokes, like working with the actors, working with me, all of us collectively trying to, you know, just constantly elevate what was there and make it the best and funniest it could be. But then like, you know, 10 years later with Zombieland 2, they've written both the Deadpool movies and have loads of stuff. Uh, you know, they just wrote a Michael Bay movie. Like they have tons of stuff shooting and in production and they're just real busy. So they couldn't be as available uh, on this shoot. And so as much as I love that collaboration with the writer, we were kind of a bit more left to our own devices on Zombieland 2, which um, maybe led to even more improv just because we didn't have... The benefit of a writer who could just do a quick punch up, you know, in between takes. Uh, and so we kind of had to fend for ourselves a little bit more. Um, but that ended up being a great process as well. And Jesse Eisenberg's, you know, like a published writer and, uh, you know, playwright. And he's just a really talented guy. So he's also a great asset in terms of just like, even if he wasn't coming up with his own lines, he could kind of always help us get out of any problems that we had if like you know whatever on the day didn't correspond to exactly what was written or somehow just in the blocking you know this scene wasn't working quite as intended sometimes he would help us get out of those tricky situations but um there are all those actors you know Emma, and Woody and jesse and all of them they're they're so experienced and so talented that they, they just bring so much to the table and because i think they have such love for the their characters in the movie they were really generous in terms of working together to figure things out. Um, but I like, I love, I love the relationship with the writers. Like I love having a second set of eyes. Uh, it's not unlike commercial directing where you have the guys who created the, you know, the spots there as your partners helping you bring it to life. And I think that relationships, you know, really great. And especially since I come from commercials, it's really natural for me too um, to be able to just rely on somebody of like, Hey, um, you know, let's beat that joke. Let's come up with an alt or whatever. Or just like, what'd you think of that take? Was that what you intended with it? Um, and you know, I always heard it like this and then, you know, that's just another option to try and get, which is great for post. Um, and and, you know, I do a lot of TV stuff too. And in TV, the writers are the kind of the bosses. So when you're directing a TV episode, the writer's always there on set with you. And you know ultimately, they're going to be the ones cutting it, making the decisions in the end. Um, so you're kind of serving them more in a ad kind of model um, as a director, and so that that relationship with writers is just one I I kind of cherish and, and very comfortable with.
1: It sounds like you really emphasize collaboration. Is that typical on a Hollywood set?
0: I can't um, speak to other. I think everybody's their own person. I'm sure you know, Paul Thomas Anderson or, you know, one of these kind of auteurs, Tarantino, they don't need the collaboration as much because they generate it all and have such, you know, the Coen brothers, they they know exactly what they're shooting every, you know, angle and frame before they get there. For me, it's really about working together and finding it with your partners. And that's the aspect of filmmaking that I love the most, actually, is just assembling a team of really talented people. You know, I often say that everyone there is much better at what they do than I am, but I'm kind of like the guy who has to get the best out of everyone. That's the talent that I have is like making sure the DP is doing his best and that the shots are, you know, as dynamic and lit as well as they can be. Um, you know, that the actors are giving their best performances that the production design is exactly how I want it. It's a it's the but it but it's that back and forth relationship with your partners who are all extraordinarily talented that help elevate the project as a whole. And you can always feel when there's a weak link. Um, you know, when somebody's not at the top of their game and everybody else is, you know, it, it's no fun and, and, and you definitely feel it. So I'm just as careful as casting my crew as I am about casting the actors because you want to make sure that everyone you surround yourself is, you know, at, at you know, at their a game.
2: Right. Right. So you mentioned a few other directors. Um, and we wonder, you know, how do you, how does a director get chosen for a particular film? Is, is your agent looking for projects? Are you, um, working on scripts or even just looking at scripts from, uh, friends or, um, people you've worked with before? How does that work?
0: It kind of depends. Um, I've had lots of different scenarios. I mean, most of the time, when I'm up for a job, I have to pitch, uh, on it the same way you would for a commercial, like you You know, I've done treatments, I've done visual presentations, I've done rip reels, like all those different kinds of things. Um, but, but because I'm beholden to the material coming for me, coming to me from someplace else, usually there's already a producer, a studio behind it. And so, yeah, whether it comes through my agent or, you know, however way it comes to me, I, you generally have to take a meeting just make sure that your guys are all or that you and the the people who are in control of the material are all kind of seeing the same movie uh, and there's usually a series of meetings where you kind of meet with progressively more you know senior or high up people in the company who decide whether or not they want to entrust you with the millions of dollars to go make the movie and you know some of the pitches I've gone after have led to the movies I've made and some of the pitches I've gone after other people ended up making the movies so it kind of just depends um uh on each one but uh for me I like to you know just cuz I come from that commercial background I like to put together a lookbook kind of thing as well as like any you know I think the most important thing when you're pitching a movie is is the script and so if you feel like the script needs work um you know coming in with solutions to the problems as opposed to just these are the problems um is is i think super helpful and usually has led to me getting the job as opposed to not as if i can offer help to something that needs work you know i think it's very rare that any studio feels like the script they're sending out is what you're ultimately going to go shoot i think they always expect that the director is going to make it their own and usually i feel like they get it they develop it to a place where it needs you know external input to kind of have it all crystallize or come into a vision. And so, um, I think they're excited to hear kind of what your take on the material is and how, how what you would do to, to elevate it. And, and, and so it's a combination of visuals, script, and then also the most important thing in any of those situations is tone, um, which is hard to talk about and is best kind of represented through, you know, citing like, I feel like this is more Raiders of Lost Ark than it is, you know, whatever, uh, whatever other movie, um, that you want to reference, but trying to come to common terms as far as like, what is the tone? And, you know, with a movie like Zombieland, which is like a mashup of genres, that's a little tricky to find or describe because it doesn't necessarily exist. Or even with Venom, which, uh, you know, for me, the kind of touchstone was American Werewolf in London, uh, which was a comedy and a horror combined. And that was like, always my sort of like reference point from the first time I met on that film, uh, just because it was unique within the, uh, sort of comic book, um, canon, the tone of that movie. Um, but yeah, those are the kind of things you talk about when you go out to try and get hired to direct a movie.
1: Uh, I'm going to ask a kind of a granular, maybe just tactical question if I may. In regards to tone, when you go into those rooms, and because obviously you know we work in advertising, and tone is all day long. So, and, and you know your your commercial background that it makes sense. We're talking very similar languages, and I, we're gonna steal this. I'll let you know. Uh, when we go and pitch, what what is that? What is your biggest, I guess, visual aid or setup? I guess tactic that you set that tone with. Are you doing like a rip or what are you?
0: Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like the lookbook, like the uh, visual treatment is probably for me the best. Uh ripomatics I've never really liked any of the ones I've done or had that great success with them. Um it, it uh because they're dependent on other people's um footage, mm-hmm. it's kind of like hard to make it your own.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas with like a lookbook, I feel like you can find imagery that's not just from the dark night or whatever. You can find imagery that, you know, whether it's for Venom or for Gangster Squad, you know, the imagery isn't just all movie imagery. It's, um, you know, just visual kind of references. Right. And yeah, I remember for the Venom one, you know, I wanted that gritty San Francisco, but with kind of like an eighties John Carpenter feel. And so a lot of the images that I found for that movie or, you know, had a lot of texture. And, uh, you know, I remember all the streets were wet with lots of reflections and and, and stuff like that. So just kind of trying to create the atmosphere of the world. Um, And then casting, I think, also informs tone. So whenever I pitch a movie, I'm sure to, you know, do faces of the actors that I think would be good for the different parts, uh, just to have a conversation. Because, like, you know, for you know, gangster squad, you know, fighting Sean Penn for the bad guy. That's one version of it. And then like, you know, another actor would have pushed it a different direction. And so I think, uh, the casting actually helps inform the tone as well.
1: Was, was Sean Penn, the guy you went in with?
0: Yeah. He was my dream uh, for that role. That's awesome. I, I can't remember if like, I'm sure I had five different faces on it for him, but I'm sure I said, this is the guy I want. So then I, I went and met, met with, uh, Sean to, you know, ultimately I had to convince him to do the movie. But once I got Sean involved, it was real easy to cast everybody else because he kind of is a lightning rod for other actors and they just all wanted to be a part of it. Once, once I got Sean on board.
2: So I know we're going to, we're belaboring the point of tone a little bit, but I feel like when we were trying to teach people or we're trying to enable our guests to teach people, which you are right now, I'm interested really specifically in Zombieland and the rules of, um, kind of surviving in Zombieland. I thought was a really cool aspect to that movie. What I'm wondering is also the way that you guys layered in the graphics of the rules during the movie, was that actually part of the script? Cause it was totally yeah, it was. really
0: important. Yeah, it was as far as how they looked or behaved, I think that wasn't as clear. I think it was, you know, but, uh, it was always indicated like, you know, when in doubt, know your way out or whatever would appear on the screen. Um, but I worked, um, with this graphics company called Logan, uh, um, at the time or called Logan and they were people I was fans of through commercial work and music video work. And had always admired their motion graphics. And, um, and so we kind of worked together to develop both the opening title credits, which uh, were those kind of interactive, um, tracked in type, which was pretty early. I remember I'd seen a, like a UPS commercial uh, where they had tracked in the type like that and made it like three dimensional. Yeah. And there was also the Panic Room opening titles that were kind of my reference point um, for, for, for that movie. And then, um, it got to be really fun, like through the course of the film, like, you know, originally I'm sure they were just like, you know, chirons or whatever that just popped up. But then we started giving them behaviors and like interactivity and kind of like whether they're falling off of things or being revealed or moving like to mimic the cardio. Uh, you know, that was something that I think Logan developed and, then from that point forward, we're just looking for opportunities, um, to, uh, make them as like kind of fun as they could for just added visual humor throughout the film. Yeah. They were fantastic.
1: Yeah. Huge success on that. I think I was trying to think about that the other day because you see it all the time now, but you know, that was sort of a, a tipping point, I think for that movie. And that's why I think it part of the reason it holds up today. Cause it, they're so fun and, and still being utilized in a cool way yeah. and uh nice work on that. Um, Thanks man. What I did want to, and kind of just we'll move off zombie land real quick, just only because it's then and now um, in you're doing, and you're making this new film in sort of a different content landscape, right? Uh Today than you were back in 2009, I believe. Um, how has that changed how you have approached this thing? And, and do you have more on your plate than just the uh, feature film? Are you now, from a marketing standpoint, are you charged with doing all the little ancillary shoulder content pieces that maybe help build that story and on different social platforms, not just Netflix and things like that, but even you know the social you know, Instagrams of the world?
0: i mean i think we all know for marketing purposes that's that's really important but um but yeah i they don't really lean on me to do that but i will mention that um at the beginning of shooting right when we're before we'd actually shot a frame we you have to do something called a camera test which is you get all the actors in their wardrobe and you kind of shoot them in different lighting scenarios and it's opportunity for the DP to kind of meet and interact with the actors for the first time and to kind of see how they look in different uh, lighting setups. And it's a chance for the wardrobe people to see kind of what different degrees of aging or, you know, you know, we might have four different costumes for one scene and we see how they look and on, on camera. And then we pick what uh, outfits we want them to wear in each scene or might move them around. And then you have to send all that stuff to the studio and they have their opinions too. So kind of just like a, you know, from going back to the beginning of filmmaking, I think there, there's always been a camera trust prior to shooting. Um, but I had all the actors in their wardrobe there and it, and, um, this was like in January and that 10 year challenge kind of was a thing on Instagram and our movie is 10 years to the day almost, uh, from the first movie came out. So I thought it'd be funny to do a 10-year challenge with our guys. And so at the camera test, I just kind of impromptu had them stand in the same poses as the original film and had the set photographer take a photo of them. And then I sent it to the marketing guys with a little mock-up of the original poster and then this and said, hashtag 10-year challenge. And I sent it to the head of marketing at Sony and they ended up putting it out on social And, uh, it, it was like a good first look for the movie and got a lot of attention online. And so, um, I'm always kind of looking for ways to be cute or clever with that kind of stuff. You know,
1: it's funny, uh, you know, that, that movie is one of those movies that if it's on TV, um, for me, uh, I'm stopping and I'm watching no matter where it is in the movie, I can, you know, look, I'll waste 15 minutes here watching that. I think mummy is for my wife, what Zombieland is for me, uh, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, But I I was thinking the other day, like, you know, the zombie kill of the week, like, just because we're in advertising and and so much of the, so many of the conversations we have day to day, there's content, 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 like, and and it's small snackable type forms, right? But zombie kill of the week, you know, I'm like, those guys have to be blowing that out for something to kind of run up and just do small vignettes, you know, on the side or anything. Is any, any of that type of stuff happening or, or that's somebody else's worry at this point?
0: <laughs> it, um, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to give away too much in the movie, but there may or may not be zombie kills of the week in the new film. Um, but yeah, I feel like those are a great opportunity for marketing to uh, grab the, the reins and, and make stuff. it's just, it all costs money. And so uh, it's whether or not the studio wants to allocate money towards that specifically or not. But I think that's like a great idea as far as just starting to get people psyched.
2: So Ruben on a production, you've actually described quite a few things that have gone on in your career and we know that those are really, really complicated things. So for you, what are your top priorities for, for any production that you do?
0: I think the the main thing, like I said, is just make sure everyone you hire is the best you can possibly get. Um, Because, you know, I rely so heavily on everybody else's talent. Like I can't production design the movie. I can't, um, you know, shoot the movie myself. Like I need people who are really good at their jobs. So whether it's a commercial or a TV show or a um, movie, it's the same thing for all of them. I just want to make sure in every position, I get the very best I possibly can. Um, I think that's essential. Um, and then, yeah, as far as uh, casting, I mean, that's probably even more essential because kind of live or die um, by who's in the movie. And it, you know, it, it, if you imagine a a movie uh, like Zombieland, we had two other actors that were finalists before, you know, other than Jesse. And he was the person I wanted. He was the person Woody wanted, but, um, but the studio wanted one of the other guys and, and just thinking back, if that person had been cast, um, it certainly wouldn't have been the movie that it ended up being. Mm. You're so dependent on, you know, who, who, who's in front of the lens and, uh, and what they bring to the table and their authenticity as a character. And I think, um, you know, you're dead without that. And I've been so fortunate that, you know, with, although my movies have had varying degrees of success, if you look at the casts, I mean, they're all as good as they could possibly be. You know, Absolutely. like we talked about 30 minutes or less zombie obviously gangster squad is like one of the greatest casts, you know, just no in, in terms of the talent. Um, and then, you know, then I'm, i am Works because of Hardy and then the zombie too same deal it's like uh it's 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 the most important thing, so um that's where I don't compromise like in fact, if I were to approach a film and i I couldn't cast it to 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 a place I was happy i don't know that I'd make the movie like if I didn't feel confident in the actors, I think I'd rather not make it than 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 make it with people i didn't believe in
1: wow so we've touched on you know, a lot of pre-production and obviously during the production, I just want to touch quickly just because you're living it right now. Uh, you're in the editing process of zombie land too. And just, I've always wondered about that. How much of your time is spent, you know, in the editing suite? Are you seeing cuts? Are you going home and coming back at weeks at a time? Are you there like every day? And then the second question is just, I guess, are you doing it by, I guess, acts or how does that all
0: come about? Okay. So, for me, editing, I had to learn kind of um, over the course of the various projects, like what works best for me on Lane. I was literally in the editing room, in the room, every minute of the entire cut, like just looking over the editor's shoulder. And I learned that that's not the best way for me to work at least. Um, so it's kind of evolved to a point now where uh, I'll watch cuts or reels, we, in, in films, we work in reels where like, it's really antiquated because no one shoots on film anymore and there aren't reels, but it used to be that like a reel could only hold 20 minutes of film. So if you have a, you know, two hour movie, it's like a six or seven reel movie. And so the editors still to this day kind of work in reels, even though it's all digital, so it doesn't really matter. But, um, but so you kind of attack it by reels and the way I like to work is is at this early stages of the film where we're kind of just doing broad strokes, just trying to see does the scene work, should it live or die, um, you know, what's the pace of the film, what's the energy of the film. Uh, I like to just kind of do broad stroke notes on paper and hand them over to the editor and have the editors execute the changes. And then if there's things like let's look at takes, like I'll go in and we'll go through all the takes or look at different cutting patterns or whatever, and I'll sit in on. Um, some of the scene work, but generally leave them to their devices to um, just address the notes and then watch the changes down. Um, But, but uh, as we kind of get it more refined, then I'll really start going through all the dailies and making sure that we've gotten all the best performances and that we didn't miss any hilarious improvs and that like, you know, every single shot that's in there deserves to be in there and that, you know, in a different take there wasn't a better little eye twitch or a nod or a whatever. Um, but it's kind of a little bit too broad strokes at this point, like if you think about it, you know, we're just it like sculpting, like we're just kind of at this point, we're just like hacking pieces off the stone. Whereas like in a few weeks or months, I'll be going in there with like a, you know, finally polishing it just to make sure that everything is exactly perfect. So that's, that's, so I'm here every day, Take a long way of answering a question. I'm here every day, but I'm kind of like, um, you know, not in the room per se, like, and also I have plenty of other stuff going on. Like I have a TV company where we're actively, you know, producing television shows and I have, you know, two shows on the air and one pilot that we just shot that I'm waiting to find out if it got picked up. So I have responsibilities <laughs> that I have to do for those shows. I'm, you know, reading scripts for potential future movies. I have uh, lots of development internally for new TV shows and movies that we're working on. I'm working with writers on pitches or uh, adapting material or taking meetings with, you know, potential collaborators. So I have a full plate in addition to editing. So it's nice to be able to kind of use that as an opportunity to have some distance from the material so that I can, kind of bounce back and forth but I use the editing room as my home base so that I can be available at at all times in case they need me but also give them the space to do the work
2: I I feel like and maybe I'm wrong about this but we do some editing too usually we're editing things are a lot shorter than what you're doing but you can use the editing room as an escape and as an excuse like you're you're like I'm in I'm in editing so no one can contact you or if they do you can just pretend they didn't do you do that
0: (laughs) uh not too intentionally. I mean, <laughs> on it. Venom, it, on <laughs> Venom, we had a much shorter schedule than um, than we should have, given the degree of uh, visual effects and just complexity of the film. Um, and so that was like a all fully. Just I didn't do much else last summer other than work on the film. Like I was, and, and also mm-hmm. it was uh, on the Sony lot. So I was like just kind of there. Right. Uh, and, and, and kind of just living in that movie, just self-contained. And I was, I, I was actively using it as an excuse, but it was a reality that I just didn't have bandwidth for anything right. else. But on this one, um, the movie kind of knows what it wants to be in a, a much better way. Like just because it's a sequel, like we just, we don't have to find it as much. It's more now it's just a matter of like re- refining it. Um, so it gives me a little bit more freedom.
1: That's interesting. Cause yeah, this is, this is technically your first sequel, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: So like, you, how is that? And we, I'm sorry, we didn't have these questions, this question down, but uh, you've already created a universe. How are you um, living in that universe? Are there like rules you made in the previous one that you're like, darn it, why'd, why'd we do that? Or do you find it constricting at all?
0: Not really. It's been more than anything, just fun, you know, just cause, like we've talked about, it's, it's like such a beloved movie by, by all parts. So like the main thing is just not wanting to make something that's not as good as the original, if not better. And so that was, that was a big thing for the actors, especially was in order for them to sign up, they had to feel really confident that we weren't going to tarnish, um, the first one because Woody, you know, he's made probably a hundred movies, but he says, this is the one wherever he's like asked about like, what you know what's going on with the sequel or i love you know bill fucking murray or i love you you know like (laughs) they just they just that's of all his things he's done that that's the movie that fans love the most uh, of his and so you know there's a real i think pride in that and then collectively we want to make sure that it 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 doesn't kind of let people down um so so we all held ourselves to a really high bar um and, and and so I guess that was the only restriction as far as doing the sequel. You know, we want to maintain the spirit, maintain uh, the sensibility, expand the world, expand, like have it grow, get a little bit bigger, more action, go to different places, meet new people, but just maintain that quality so that people don't feel like, you know, why they make that film. Oh, I wish they didn't make that film. Uh, that would be like my worst nightmare.
2: That's great. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome progression.
1: Well, Ruben, you know, part of the show promise, as we said at the beginning, is creative how. And again, you having consciously made a shift, you know, in your 20s to not having been trained to go and virtually training yourself to become a director and a filmmaker. I'm wondering if you can kind of give the audience um, so maybe some rules to live by, or maybe even just tactically what they could do, I don't know, tomorrow when they turn this thing off, uh, to sort of get on the track of becoming a filmmaker.
0: You know, the, to me, I, I think there's really only one answer is that if you want to direct, you just got to make stuff there. there, there no, one's going to give you the job because you say you want it. You have to prove that you're worthy of it. And I don't think that, you know, there's opportunities that really exist without, making them yourself, or at least at the beginning. Um, so if you can write, great, go write a short and then figure out how to execute it. Um, Steven Soderbergh just made a feature film on his iPhone, so there's nothing that limits people from, you know, that you can't make any excuses as to why you can't shoot something these days where technology is so accessible and affordable and every computer has editing software built into it. and. Um, you know, there, there's really no um, barriers to entry. It's just a matter of uh, taking initiative and being creative. So when it comes to directing, it's just like, if you can't write, then find a writer who wants to write something. There's a million people who have screenplays they're working on that you find a collaborator to help uh, write something for you or find a performer, like whether it's a stand up or an actor or a singer and go make a music video or uh, shoot a magician or do whatever it is that you need to do to just, get experience making stuff. And the way I did it was every time I shot something, I tried to do, you know, a new, try a new thing. Like I remember I was so excited that I was able to rent a jib arm for 250 bucks and that allowed me to move the camera in a way that I'd never been able to move it before. And so like, you know, just trying constantly with every project to elevate, um, you know, your, your craft and learn through the process of making things.
1: And then in terms of like just one, maybe personal marketing tip, do you have any of those in this current day?
0: It's funny because early on, I, like when I first built that website that I put my videos up on, I had a blog, like it it was just a news page. It was kind of before blogs even existed. And I would just honestly like, Oh, today sucked. I'm so bummed. I don't have anything to do. Or today was great. I went surfing or, you know, today I shot something or, uh you know i think transparency and honesty is like the best path like i, <laughs> I think now everybody's trying to sell themselves as like oh i'm balling i'm doing this i'm doing that like and it and it's pretty clear who's actually doing stuff and who's just faking it so i think as far as like self promotion or just connecting with other people i think just being honest is the best way you know whether it's like um you know, finding peers that, you know, you admire their work and giving them a a shout out, you know, just I always feel like, you know, it's always so nice when you get in a random email, like, hey, I saw something you made. Um, I really liked it. Like, that's all you need to say. I think like, just being like, straightforward and honest, to me is the best way to go about things and not trying to, like, pretend like you're, Doing things if you aren't or just being you know, honest and humble and and gracious, I think, is the best way to go about it.
2: I feel like that's amazing advice, especially coming from somebody who's yeah. operated with in Hollywood, which I don't know, may or may not be what um, it seems to be on the outside. But that's awesome. Um, and you also mentioned sort of shout outs to people you admire and uh, not asking you to necessarily do that directly. But we are interested in knowing, um, since you're such an amazing entertainer through your films what are you watching? What are you seeing that you've loved or is inspiring you lately?
1: Are you binging anything right now? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, I mean, just like a note, uh, about like the shout thing. I remember like back when I was, you know, struggling, uh, Mark Romanek had a website and he had his email on the website and I sent him an email saying, Hey, you know, I'm such a fan. I love your work. I'm trying to be a director. Here's, you know, a link to my videos or whatever. And I remember he took the time to look at a couple and wrote me back and said, Hey, you know, good work. Keep at it. And it, it meant the world to me at that time. And so I, I really think like connecting with, I mean, I've made friends, there's, there's multiple friends in my life who I've met through just like, who are like fellow directors who we just kind of connected through appreciation of, each other's work and end up cultivating a relationship through that. And so I'm a big believer in it. Um, But yeah, as far as like what I'm watching or uh, I I surprisingly don't watch a lot of stuff like my wife watches every show that is released and I, (laughs) I don't watch a lot of scripted stuff. I went to the movies by coincidence last night and it was the first time I think I've been in a movie theater this year, which is embarrassing to say, but like, I I kind of have not been consuming as much entertainment maybe that's because I have a 4 and 2 year old or maybe just cuz I'm so busy yeah. with making it that I I haven't been as focused on watching it but um um but yeah for me um strangely survivor is like the one thing I make sure I watch every week wow um huh. uh, yeah, it's, I thought it's, our family
2: was the only family that did
0: that. Seriously, <laughs> it doesn't—it doesn't make sense. But that's like my favorite show, and I watched every episode of it. I—I um, I really loved um, this British show, Fleabag. I thought it was so funny, and I'm excited they're coming out with a new season. Um, the movie I saw last night is Long Shot, which uh, Jonathan Levine directed, and I thought was really, really incredible. It was so funny, and like. Um, that, like you can't believe how funny Charlize Theron is. And, really? and it was my favorite performance that Seth Rogen's given. It's a really, mm-hmm. really great movie. And, and I'm sad that it it didn't, it just got steamrolled by the Avengers. Cause it's, it's a great movie. Um, I'm very excited for Tarantino's new movie. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was, Absolutely. I remember I ended up randomly going to Musso and Frank's one night for dinner and they were shooting, on Hollywood Boulevard at that time. And they had converted like three blocks of it back to the late sixties. All the storefronts had been changed and it just was, you could tell just walking on that street that it's going to be an amazing film. And just because I, you know, shot in a lot of the same locations of old Hollywood for, for gangster squad, it was really neat to see it all kind of, you know, brought back to a different era, but still just a nostalgic LA movie, which I always love and you know i think he's maybe the, the best working filmmaker so um well he's got a lot of competition but he's I always love his movies so yeah. i'm really excited to see that film it's funny um i don't i don't have like a long list of, like i don't watch game of thrones i feel very left out at the moment but um <laughs> yeah I, I i tend to not be watching as much movies and tv as i used to which which i'd like to honestly, to change. I I wish I was going to the movies more. It's just, just for whatever, where I'm at in my life right now, it's not as easy as it once was.
2: I sort of wish I was directing more movies. So yeah, yeah, let me know. Maybe we can switch around a little
1: bit. We can come intern.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, Well, Hey, look, this has been great. Uh, You know, really appreciate how open and, and forward you've been about the process. Thank you for even just taking this podcast um, you know, you're paying for, you're actually living what you just spoke, which is, you know, you didn't know us. Uh, We reached out and you were very gracious. We really appreciate that.
0: Yeah. It's been a pleasure.
1: One last question. I think the world is probably just waiting for us to ask this question and I know you're not going to answer it, but how are you going to top Bill Murray cameo?
0: I don't think we can. Honestly, like, how oh, can so you? So good.
1: Uh, I don't know. That's the, I mean, that's
0: been the thing that's hanging over our heads this whole time. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I, I'm not going to say we don't try, but I think, um, I think that will forever be something very, very special.
2: Yeah. That's something you can hang on your wall for your life. That was an incredible, mm-hmm. incredible cameo. Yeah.
0: Awesome. awesome.
1: <laughs> Lastly, what's, what, uh, can you tell us what the next feature film after Zombieland 2 might be or?
0: Uh, I don't have any movies lined up after Zombieland Two, uh, which is actually kind of nice because um, I've been working nonstop for the past like basically three years, so it'll be uh, good to to have some time at home with my family. But um, but I I mentioned briefly that we have this TV company and this pilot that um, hopefully we'll find out next week if it got picked up. It's called currently called Stumptown and it it stars Kobe Smulders and it's for ABC and I'm really, really excited about that show I didn't direct it, but I'm producing it and our company uh, developed it and I think it's going to be pretty amazing so um, fingers crossed for that one and then yeah, just uh, I'll be looking forward to doing a movie in the not too distant future Um, and so I'm reading scripts now and then uh, like I said working on a bunch of TV projects and and I'm always uh, available for commercials so hit me up
2: Awesome. Well, we look forward to all those things. And we, once again, just want to say thank you because uh, this has been a great um, time and you're really gracious with your time.
0: Thank you. It's been
2: fun. All right. I have to say, you know, it's hard to pick my favorite episode. Um, And I'm not going to say that this is my favorite episode, but I am going to say that, wow, that was an absolute masterclass in what it takes to just grind to become a really 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 important Hollywood director
1: folks I'm not saying you shouldn't pay that really expensive tuition to take a you know a master class at some college about filmmaking and you could just listen to this podcast for 60 minutes and maybe get the same amount of value out of it it's free right this podcast this is free. podcast to date is free Jim. yep, 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 yep. but you know uh, the, the guy just seems um, uh, he's just very open with his process and very open with what it took to get there. And he continues to kind of follow this mentality of, of hard work and will just pushing him to succeed, which I think is super inspiring, Jed. And extremely humble. And I have to say folks, like he gave
2: us well over an hour of really, really solid focus and time. And I just think that that's nice of anyone to do, but he's in a situation right now where he's trying to finish a really important movie for his career. And that was just really nice of him. So he's a great guy.
1: I agree. And if you're sitting there at home, listening to this saying, why didn't they ask this question? Why didn't they ask that question? Well, just so you know, Jed and I had a ton of questions. We wanted to respect Ruben's time, but we could go all day with this guy. He's just a a fountain of information and he's very candid and willing to, you know, help educate you know, up and coming filmmakers. And I think that's, what's really uh, endearing about him. So
2: we're going to do our best to make it even easier for you guys. So check out the show notes. We will be um, summarizing the conversation and of course, creating his um, three big creative house and uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at creative how pod. And you can check out those show notes on creative how and smash the likes whenever possible folks. On the social media handles, Twitter, Instagram, at CreativeHowPod. And watch some movies. Watch, watch some Rubin movies. Seriously, if you haven't seen Zombieland, please do. It's You will really enjoy it. And 30 Minutes or Less. It's a hidden gem. It really is a hidden gem. It's Danny McBride. It's Nick Swartzen. It's
1: Aziz Ansari. I mean, it's Jesse Eisenberg. It's Aziz Ansari's rookie card. It's uh, it's Fred Ward. It's an amazing. Well, the list goes on and on. Hey, Jed. Did you hear our kick-ass intro music? Shockingly, that's out of our technical wheelhouse here at Creative How. That type of sick sound design is a White Noise Lab original. White Noise Lab is a music composition and sound design studio that works with agencies, production companies, and brands on projects for film, broadcasts, interactive websites, corporate videos, video games, and experimental projects. The chances that that movie trailer you just saw on, you know, YouTube... That's probably a White Noise Lab original more often than not. So whether you're looking to fulfill your sound design needs or simply need someone to collaborate with on an experimental project or maybe an experimental podcast, check out whitenoiselab.com. That's whitenoiselab.com.